Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. So, uh, <laughs> it feels weird to say, how's it going? Um, yes. It's a weird weekend out there for those who don't know. Um, this is the weekend of the protests. And although we're in two different cities, we have curfews and all of this. We call it the f- week, the first weekend of the protests, just in case there are more protests continuing yes. after this weekend. Is it the first weekend? It- well, it's the final weekend. I think in- so. Let's put it that I way. think. Tomorrow is June 1st. Yeah. Yeah. The weather here was nice. Yeah. It's a very nice weekend for protesting or whatever else you happen to be doing outside. Yes. yes. Um, we had lovely weather. We've had quite nice weather. To be fair, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to be hot again this next week, but it was yes. like in the mid-60s. So Oh, it's been hot here. I mean, it gets hot here. <laughs> this is what happens. <laughs> yeah. It actually makes some sense sort of what we're talking about today. Contemplating hell. Yes, and justice. Yes, so. hell and justice. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's a good starting point. Um, because I think we explicitly left off last time saying we were going to talk about uh, hell as justice this time, and uh, also heretics and saints, how you could maybe ever get out of hell if there's a way. Yes. All sorts of exciting adventures like that. Just a tiny sprinkling more of Dante. Yes. So this brings up the the fun point. Um I'm going to start off with a quote here. Uh, Bynum and Friedman edited a book of essays called Last Things, Death and the Apocalypse in the Middle Ages, um, <laughs> which is great. That's a good title. And of course, you have to specify because Death and the Apocalypse come many times. I personally am rewatching Good Omens at the moment. Um, oh, perfect. So yes. Yes. It does. And of course, this is one of those big things. Uh, so this is a quote. They say, recent scholarship has tended to treat separately Concerns that both medieval intellectuals and ordinary people would have seen as closely linked. Death, the afterlife, and the end of time. The moment of death, the places of the afterlife to which the souls depart, heaven, hell, and purgatory. The final judgment or millennial age that may either be or presage the end of time. And the person reunited at judgment or in the afterlife are all last things. Um, so the idea being sort of what we hmm. talked about last time. Um, first of all, you don't know where you're going to go, <laughs> um, heaven or hell. If you get to purgatory, of course, you'll go to heaven eventually. And purgatory is where most people aim for, because you can only get straight to heaven if you're a saint. Would it have felt like chutzpah if you were like, I'm definitely going to get into heaven? Oh, yeah. You're basically declaring yourself a saint, um, which, of course, okay. a lot of the one we've talked about did do, more or less, right? Right. Marjorie is told. Yeah, we were talking about Marjorie mm-hmm. Kemp crying for the sins of the world and how she helped people get into heaven. Yes. And she's told that her sins have been forgiven so that basically now all the penance she does is for other people. Um, which is a way of saying that she's basically going <laughs> to straight in. Yeah. Um, Good yes. job. You know, she doesn't straight up call herself a saint, but that is what that means, right? Yeah. And so that idea um, of wondering where you're going to go and if we talk, we'll probably talk more about death and dying at some point. Um, the idea of a good death. Right. Um, which I believe is... It seems to come up frequently in the topics we've already addressed. 
<laughs> such as yes, plague exactly such as the easter story uh, and of course a good death means hopefully peaceful but also that you get a chance <laughs> to confess right sure because that's the exact idea that you want to at least make sure you get into purgatory and we talked about the whole sort of problem of theoretically you won't go to hell if you don't want to <laughs> Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is to say, if you don't want to, that you will feel regret, you will feel bad, you will have done enough or want to do enough penance in purgatory that you will get to heaven. Um, The Mm -hmm. only way to go to hell is essentially to not care and not feel bad about what you've done. Um, However, ordinary people were certainly terrified about sort of the prospects. Um, And this idea of your soul heads off, your body, of course, will decay, but at the end of all things, right, the last judgment, when the soul and the body are reunited, because apophatic mysticism is essentially a heresy, right? The soul does Mm -hmm. not dissolve into the goodness of God. The soul and the body become a discrete unit again, and they are either in heaven or hell. Um, And so the question is, if you're in hell, is there any possibility of the last judgment that that judgment would be changed? And as they encroached on the millennium, which of course means a thousand, right? The year 1000. Yeah. Um, there definitely was this sort of feeling like maybe the millennium is the big difference. We sort of felt that when we got to 2000. You know, there ha- it has to mark something. What does it mark? Right. <laughs> and so this idea of... Bigger finds a blockbuster video. Yes. Of accidentally, yes. as I recall. I know. Oh, remember blockbuster video? I just dated myself. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, they've all basically, cl- right, there were some left in Alaska until sort of last year, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is exactly the point, right? That there feels like there's going to be this epic change. So what's it going to be? What is it going to mean? Right? And so one of the things that Byman Friedman comment on is that a l- scholars tend to look at all these things differently. Right? So you look at death. What do people do when they're dying? How do they write their wills? you know, get last rites, all this stuff, the practice of death. Mm -hmm. Um, The concepts of the afterlife. That's something else, right? Religious theologians look at that separately. Uh, But all of these things were, of course, closely, closely linked. Obviously, they were linked, right? Death leads you to the afterlife. So for ordinary people, they weren't discrete things to study. And so a lot of these movements that sort of showed up around the millennium, and many of them kept going, Christianity itself, interestingly, is a movement that shows up around a millennium, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, has to keep going. It turns out the world's not going to end immediately. <laughs> Christ isn't coming back immediately. Right. Um, and so this sort of happens again around the year 1000, and in many ways again around 2000, and it happens at cent- other centuries as well, of course. Right? Yeah. Um, but so... Um, there are always very occasionally people predicting the end of the world, mm-hmm. and then, you right. know... Well, and especially in movies. You go. I love it. You what know? do you do? Yeah. But yeah. like in movies where people predict it, and of course, you know, it's coming, that it's true because the movie is about whatever the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, Americans versus the end of yes. the world. Always. Is always. Yeah. The, the Americans who have the chutzpah to like stand up and fight yes. against, you Also know, aliens, of course. I'm going to punch that tornado in the face. We do sort of, I mean, obviously, <laughs> everyone's got alien yeah. movies, but... Um, yes, we have really perfected some of these genres in many ways. Yes. Um, <laughs> that being said, of course, monster movies, you know, Japan. But yes. um, that's a different sense of the end of the world that is much more from within, 
Right, we've created our own destruction. <laughs> right, yes. Godzilla. Americans are the ones who created an entire ver- like genre of film that was like, we're going to tunnel to the center of the earth and punch it in the face. Yes. We're going to punch all these sharks and the- we're going to punch the aliens in the face. Oh. We're going to... Or you drop know. things into the sun or whatever it is we're going to do. Yeah. Yes. Explode the comet. Whatever. Um, asteroid, <laughs> I guess. Hmm. Asteroid, yeah. yeah. Um, but that sort of idea, right? So um, depending on what it is <laughs> you think is going to happen, um, asteroids destroying the Earth aren't so much a thing in the Middle Ages because, of course, they didn't quite have that theory yet. Right. <laughs> you know, they didn't know the dinosaurs yeah. had gone you, extinct. You occasionally see records... Especially in China, I think around five or six hundred of supernovas happening. Oh, absolutely! They knew um, that there was but, stuff happening out in space. Yeah, they were they were doing a lot of interesting astronomy. Yes. But the idea of, but, that we have of you know, I think because we know mm-hmm. this is how the dinosaurs went, right? This right. idea that it took us a long time before we started thinking. Like I want to say maybe the mid nineties, people actually started thinking about this. Yeah. As something we should be careful well, about. Think, you know, the, the the sort of sci-fi version, I think, has been around for longer. Um, but that sense of something could drop from the sky on top of us from mm-hmm. outer space, other than aliens. I mean, <laughs> an asteroid, right? A giant <laughs> rock could basically yeah. end the world by falling through our atmosphere. Um, that is a more modern idea. Yeah. Um, but no, of course, the supernovas, all these things were taken as signs and omens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, start, they'd notice stars showing up where they hadn't been before. Right. Um, which, of course, does happen. And stars disappearing, of course. You know? Which also happens. Yeah. Um, so all these things are signs. But um, medieval scholars, <laughs> Byman and Friedman point this out, um, have argued how far um, or whether such medieval eschatological movements had their origins and expectations and demands for radical social change. Um, so hmm. eschatology, of course, the end of the world. Um, so these medieval movements, this is something that scholars do argue about, right? Are they concerned about radical social change? Um, Byman and Friedman point out that the millennium could be seen not only as the unfolding end of history, but also as the arrival of justice for the oppressed and inarticulate. Right? So this is one of those big things, that moment of judgment, the final judgment that everyone's waiting for. Yeah. Right? Where Jesus sort of comes down on his rainbow. It's usually a rainbow. You can look at paintings, oh. plays, right? The rainbow is the sign. It's the sign, right? It's the right. covenant. From, from Noah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the reminder of that promise. Um, and so Jesus comes down on his rainbow and um, essentially judges the world. And that could be seen and was seen by some as a possibility for sort of radical change, right? So justice for the oppressed, justice against tyranny and greed, you know, all those things. But there's a question in some ways, like, how much was that a part of these movements? To what extent was that maybe a sort of motivation for some of the movements, how many people were really concerned about that happening? Uh, and so that's one of these big open questions. And that's what makes this actually a good talk for today, right? Because yeah. that idea of justice. Yes. <laughs> um, justice delayed, justice deferred, right? Um, the raisin and the mm-hmm. sun. Yeah. Of course, the 
the poem originally that then becomes the famous title of Lorraine Hansberry's play um, from Langston Hughes' poem to her play. And her play, of course, is about her own life, right? Her father is a, is a case you can look up. They did have to sue to move because of redlining, mm-hmm. right? Um, so this idea of justice and yeah. how do you get it, when do you get it, um, and the assumption, right, that, of course, when Jesus comes out on his rainbow, that justice is one of the things that will happen, right? Um, so this is one of those big questions. And this is one of the reasons, presumably, besides sort of the extraordinary poetry and the great imagery and the wonderful sense of humor, um, one of the reasons why Dante's Inferno is so great, Purgatory and Paradise are also amazing, but that the Inferno really shows justice in this light. So you have people being punished. It's very much the punishment fits the crime. Mm-hmm. Right? So my favorite... Well, one of my favorites. There are a lot of great ones. Um, but I'm going to bring up Canto 19, which is the third sort of pocket to the bulge of Circle 8. So Circle 9, of course, is the final circle. Okay. So Circle 8 is getting down there. And um, it's got all these pockets. Yeah. I remember... Isn't Odysseus in, like, Circle 8? Um, for reasons I did not entirely understand. I'll have to look him up and remember exactly but, where he I is. No, Which I can do. Yeah. But I'd like to point out, so first, the the fun of this one is, this is the Simoniacs. <laughs> um, and simony, of course, is something that's still around, but we don't really know much about it. Um, and they sell ecclesiastical favors and offices, essentially. Right? So you're making money off the church is the, the basic mm-hmm. point um, by selling this stuff. And who we've got here <laughs> in our sort of far down circle is Simoniacs. Specifically, we've got a few popes. Um, and this is the reminder that until <laughs> fairly modern, around things like the reunification of Italy, where the Pope lost Whoa. almost all of the papal lands, except for the Vatican and um, the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi. Right. So that was like the 1800s. early 1900s? Mid-1800s. Yeah, late. Mid-1800s. Yeah. The U.S. is having a civil war, and so is Italy, basically. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, essentially. Yeah. But the reunification of Italy, one of the things that happens... Lots of things happen. We will footnote the dates and these other things. But essentially, (laughs) um, a number of things happen. And the Pope has promised some stuff in return for giving up his land. And so a lot of the things that we think of as sort of given, right? Um, Especially about the Pope and about certain aspects of Catholic dogma. A lot of those things really... um, happen sort of around the reunification of Italy. Some of them happen later with Vatican II. Um, So there are a lot of things that sort of happen in the modern era, which can mean anything from like the 1600s, really. But, you know, in this case, sort of the mid-1800s, mid-1900s, a lot of these things we sort of take as given happen at that point, or happen at some of these later Mm -hmm. points. One of the things that is more modern <laughs> is this idea that popes essentially are infallible and will presumably go to heaven. Hmm. This is one of the things the pope sort of gets. <laughs> and this therefore did not exist in the 1300s when Dante 
was writing the Inferno. Um, now, of course, popes were supposed to be holy, but there was no sort of dogmatic agreement to declare them as such. So are they only considered infallible like when they write an official bull? Like, what does it mean if they contradict each other? Some popes are more infallible than others? No, things change. <laughs> you know, uh, things shift, things change. That's fine. Yeah. Things evolve. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. And so uh, we have here Pope Nicholas III, and he is upside down in what is essentially a baptismal font, but it's the hellish inverse of a baptismal font. Um, and so his feet are basically being licked by fire. And when the next pope, who's evil, <laughs> dies, wow. he will replace Nicholas, and Nicholas will slide further in to the font, right? This, so this is a sort of endless pipe, not just a font. Mm -hmm. And also Dante tells us that he got in trouble once for breaking open a font because a kid was stuck inside it. And so he broke it. Um, and, you know, he was like, that wasn't, he wasn't being disrespectful or blasphemous. He was saying wow. a kid. Yeah. And people have sort of argued about, like, it's probably a real story, but also he seems to be using it as an example of him kind of, you know, exploding the hypocrisy of the church. Right. Mm -hmm. um, as he is doing here with the Inferno. Um, so Nicholas has been here for a while and Dante shows up and he can't see him because it's just his feet poking out. Right. Getting licked by fire. And so he thinks that Dante is the pope who's come to replace him at first because the damned can see the future. And so they know what's going to happen in the future. And at the end of the world, when there's no more future, they'll be blind. Um, so he's seen into the hmm. future and he knows the next pope is coming and this is going to be Boniface the Eighth. In 1303. And of course, it's 1300. So he thinks Boniface is three years early. <laughs> yeah. Now, remember, Dante is writing this 1307 or eight or nine. And so therefore, he knows that's how he knows when he's writing it, of course, when Boniface is going to die. <laughs> but he's supposedly there three years before it happens. So he has Nicholas prophesying that when Boniface dies, he will replace Nicholas and Nicholas will slide further in and Boniface will then be the one with his feet poking out. Um, so he's already prospering that, you know, Boniface has got three years to repent, but it's clearly not going to happen, <laughs> right? It's basically a foregone yeah. conclusion. It's not going to happen. Um, so Boniface is going to show up and then after Boniface, Clement V. And so, and that's as far as Dante got, because that's the, who was Pope when he was writing. But it's worth pointing out. They went through Pope a lot faster in those days. Yeah. Well, first of all, the reason Nicholas has actually been there for a while, because there were four good Popes after him. Who all go mm, to heaven. Yeah. So Nicholas has been there for a while. Boniface is the next bad one. Then there's a good pope after Boniface, and then Clement V is the next bad one. Um, and it's worth pointing out that we have mentioned Clement V because he held the Council of Vienne, mm. where, among other things, they did sort of decide or redecide or, you know, concretize this idea of the dogma that the individual soul and body come together at the end. We talked about that sort of last time with Marguerite Perrette. Um, so that's Clement V. Um, and if you notice, all of these popes get deemed simoniacs. The idea, essentially, they're using money to corrupt their office, um, or even to buy their office, and to mm -hmm. buy offices for others, and so on. So, this idea of the punishment fitting the crime, right? Um, this is how you treat the church, so you end up in this sort of hellish inverse of the baptismal font, right? Um, so, for Dante, this is definitely how he sees justice. <laughs> and this is why, as he goes through hell, he has to learn that they all deserve to be there. Because it is just, right? Divine justice. 
Mm-hmm. Dante is not, he believes in love, right? It's all about divine love. We talked about this last time. However, he obviously doesn't have the same sense that a lot of the women have um, that we have talked about, that divine love should um, sort of allow everybody ultimately into heaven, that everyone right. ultimately should be worthy of divine love. Dante does not, even though he feels bad for some of the people who are in hell early on before he learns he shouldn't, um, he clearly does not have that opinion. <laughs> um one of the really sort of interesting things also, I think, about this is that um, this is, of course, sort of the way we continue to think of hell, basically. And the sort of sense in which, yeah, so for example, you mentioned Odysseus. Yes, he and Diomedes are together <laughs> in a tongue of flame that's forked. And they are in, I believe, circle eight as well. Yeah. Which is where we are, yeah. Um, but they are evil counselors, I think. That's why the forked tongue of oh. flame. Right. Um, and obviously, he's not against all sort of pagan characters, etc., right? He's got Virgil, yeah. Yeah, but this is this idea of sort of false counsel. Hmm. Yeah. And so we have um, this really interesting sense from Dante, right, of the idea that there are definitely people who deserve to be in hell, right? So evil counselors, Ulysses and Diomedes, who are being punished together in this sort of forked tongue of flame. Evil counselors, though, generally are in sort of tongues of flame. Okay. Yeah, specifically tongues. Yes. Right. So. You know, that's what we call it today. But of course, that that is the point, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) But this sort of interesting sense, right, that um, love, Dante says, right, this is the description on the gate that love did build hell, primordial love, right? But he, he really does see in this instance that love can mean, right, extreme punishment for those who've earned it, mm-hmm. um, which is ultimately a very, very different view from the women that we've talked about who don't necessarily see it that way. Um, because while humans want revenge, humans want to see people um, suffer for their evil. Right. Humans want justice and radical social change, but that the divine is above all that. Right? right. And the, the, the idea that divine could deliver justice and change without condemning anyone to an eternity in hell. Right? That, 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 that's sort of the love that these women are going for. Um, and Dante is not so much on board with that. Um, which is possibly also part of his own pride. I mean, he definitely does get his own back at certain people that he puts in (laughs) hell, clearly on sort of personal grudges. Also some people he meets in purgatory. Yeah. You know, there's definitely that side of Dante. And one of the interesting things then is the way he sort of sees the hierarchy unfold, which, as I said, is sort of itself based on love. Right. So the further in you get, the more you get to people who are without it. Um, so obviously, like mm-hmm. the false counselors um, or simoniacs, right? Those who are actively denying love, right? The further you get sort of into hell. But there's some interesting things, for example. Um, in This is weird. Um, we read the Inferno senior year of high school. Um, and we were given this assignment. Um, if you were going to add a sin to Dante's hell, like what would you add and where would you put it? 
Um, and looking back, I feel like this was a weird assignment. Yeah. And also, this was granted a long time ago. I don't know if people would be given this assignment today. Hmm. I mean, probably someone would. Start, but it, it doesn't seem like a sort of appropriate assignment to ask kids who they damn. You know? Who would you add? Yeah. And in some ways, the more I know about the Middle Ages, the more it seems wrong to me. Because obviously, there is this whole question of love. And so it really shouldn't be about who would you damn, but, you know, who might you undam or who should be forgiven. Which is actually mm-hmm. what I did for my assignment. Um, and when they uh-huh. got to me, <laughs> yeah, um, they're like, so who would you damn? Because we had to announce it in class. And I was like, well, I would, yeah. undam- I would undamn the sodomites, who, of course, are damned. Okay. Uh, they're pretty early on. They're yeah. going to run across this burning sand forever. That's a good choice. I was going to say maybe, like, the the people stuck in limbo should be allowed out of there. I- yeah, should get in. Absolutely. Right? The lovers in the world. I feel like... It's like unbaptized children and people who lived before Christ and... Oh, well, limbo has basically been abolished by the modern church. Oh, well. Worth pointing out. Okay. They've sort of decided that that's not a thing. <laughs> Good for them. Um, but, but, I mean, our grandfather was taught to baptize kids, even though, of course, he was Jewish. Because if you ever, you know, if there's a kid who was dying or was a stillbirth, that you would have baptized it so the parents could be sure it had gone to heaven. Okay. You know, um, so doctors were taught to baptize kids in an emergency. Wow. Yeah. Um, And that's something that was true in the Middle Ages as well. Um, Not doctors so much, but, you know, anyone who would deliver a kid, you could do right that you sort of baptize them. In the Middle Ages, of course, it was not quite as open. I mean, you kind of needed a priest, but there were a lot of ways around it. Um, Parents would sometimes take a kid to a shrine and the child would be miraculously resurrected just enough to be mm-hmm. baptized before dying again. Yeah. Which is pretty clearly, I think we can all agree, obviously, a lot more a lie than a miracle. But, you yeah. know, a miracle in the sense that the parents feel like their child has gone to heaven. So there was definitely, right, this was a this was a huge problem in the Middle Ages as well. It absolutely was. Yeah. <clears throat> and Dante, uh, he, he does kind of skirt around a lot of this. <laughs> but uh, there's a great article by Michael Camille in an edited series or an edited book called uh, Queering the Middle Ages, uh, edited by Berger and Kruger. Um, And he wrote this article called, quote, The Pose of the Queer, Dante's Gaze, Brunetto Latini's Body. Wow. Uh, Which is about this character that Dante meets and he knows. Apparently this guy was openly gay, right? They have this great conversation. Um, And Camille is an art historian, was an art historian, and he's writing about um, the specific uh, illustration in the specific manuscript. Um, and how the way that he's drawn standing with his sort of pose, this sort of arm, his kind of elbow out and his arm oh, kind of cocked wow. this way. Um, and is this kind of a queer pose and also how long this has been seen as a queer pose because you can see it anywhere <laughs> on Drag Race today um, or even in balls. I mean, it, it really is sort of everywhere. Um, and so this idea of this pose, um, can we read it? the way we would today. I mean, today you would absolutely read it as a queer pose. So can you read it that way? And if so, why? Um, And he actually has some more interesting stuff where he says maybe it's actually more of a masculine pose than a queer pose. We read it today as a queer pose. Hmm. Anyway, um, it's a great article. But it's also this very fascinating study um, of this character, right? Who um, Dante clearly... (laughs) This is the fun part, right? Because um, as with a lot of the characters that Dante meets early on... 
he is sort of sorry to see them damned. You know, Dante's not going to question the church teaching that someone who's gay should be damned. Right. Um, but he feels bad to see him there. And um, Latini's not at all ashamed. This is true of the people early on. You know, the, mm-hmm. the people who are very early on, they're not ashamed to be there. You know, they say hi. They're like, they want to be remembered back on Earth. Right. Right. So he's not ashamed. He's not. Um, so it's a, anyway, it's this very sort of interesting sense that despite Dante's relative, you know, um, he's fairly orthodox. In some ways, he's extremely orthodox, more so than a lot of the women we even talk about. But in other ways, he clearly isn't entirely orthodox. That being said, um, he does also clearly sort of have some pause occasionally about some of these people or some of these sins. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't argue with it, but there's some sort of interesting conversations that definitely happen. Right. And so he's one of them. Um, yeah. So Camille has this sort of great article about it. Um, but it does beg this question of <laughs> how can Dante really be so sure he knows who would be damned and who wouldn't be? Presumably he assumes Latini's been damned because if you're gay, you are damned unless you repent. Mm-hmm. And he clearly isn't repentant, <laughs> even when Dante meets him. But it's still this very interesting question, right? So heretics and saints, how do you know who's who? How can you tell the difference between someone who goes to heaven and someone who goes to hell? How can you be sure? And this is a giant, giant problem. So, shall we continue? Okay. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about this. With a giant problem. <laughs> My assumption previously had been that heretics typically depart for the afterlife in a big ball of fire, whereas saints are beautiful and incorruptible and smell like flowers and things like that. Oh, yes. Uh, The great moment in Brothers Karamazov, (laughs) where his, you know, um, mentor starts to stink. Yes. And he's so upset. Oh, I was thinking also of the scene in um, Good Omens where they put her on the on the pile to, uh, you know, burn her at the stake. Oh, of course. And she's and she explodes. explodes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she, she explodes on purpose, of course, because she filled herself with, like, <laughs> yes. powder. Yeah. Agnes Nutter. Because she knew, she knew it was yes. coming, right? So she did this on purpose to blow everybody up um, to teach them a lesson. Yeah. Uh, which is great. <laughs> And well-deserved. There um, is justice. <laughs> yes, that's justice, right? Yes. Um, so there's this wonderful sense um, that, yes, um, generally speaking, if someone is condemned of heresy, right, you have to be accused, <laughs> you're put on trial, you're condemned, um, you will be burned at the stake. Okay. And if someone is a saint... Similar. (laughs) After death, after death, though, you have to die Mm -hmm. first. And then you're put on trial, essentially, um, and canonized, right? right? But it's still a sort of trial. Now, here's the fun thing. All right, we're going to skip two sections. I'm going to come back to the two case studies after we go through all this. All right. So uh, this heading on our outline is called Possession, Proof, and Discernment. Um, possession can be either demonic or divine. Okay. How can you tell? So this is the question, right? And this is one of the really fun things, because um, as with um, end of days movements, eschatology, right? Um, And we've talked 
previously about the devil and horror films, right? And we, so a lot of these things come up. All of these things are still with mm-hmm. us. We very much still have this sense of sort of the apocalypse, right? Um, there are still sort of millennium movements, right? Um, that do have elements of eschatology in them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so all these things still exist. Um, demonic possession, absolutely, right? Shows up in all these horror movies. Yeah, I was thinking like about... Divine um, possession. The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, that is the one. It's like you know I mean, that it's their tongue. You know it's the, but that's the, the one. devil because of all the green soup that is vomited yes. forth. Um, um so this is of course uh yeah, we've talked about this. This is right. huge. But divine possession. This is something else we've mentioned mm-hmm. before, I think. Um we don't really have that concept in quite the same way. This is something that really kind right. of disappears. Does it? It didn't even come up in the movie Dogma, which honestly is the only mainstream movie I can think of that actually addresses the divine in a long time. Right. No one is possessed. Right. They see the divine and speak to the divine. Sort of. But no one is possessed by the divine. Uh, Unless, I mean, yeah, no one is possessed because God appears in a mortal form. But of course, God has done that before. That's not new. And that's not possession. That's yeah. right. God doesn't possess right. somebody. Um, so this sense of, yeah, divine possession is something that a lot of these women essentially have. Right? They have visions. They all, they all have visions. Mm-hmm. They all sort of talk to Jesus. They all have these visions. But for some of them, that really does stretch to possession, to divine possession, where they might be possessed, they might speak. Mm-hmm. So they'll give sermons. They'll... And this is the thing, right? It can allow women to do things women aren't allowed to do. So, for example, we talked about the Feast of Corpus Christi, how Juliana writes the divine office. Right. She's kind of possessed. She's basically divinely possessed, and she dictates it. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not exactly her doing it, but of course it is her doing it, right? But it it's- isn't, because she's divinely possessed. So this is very common. Um, some women will actually write their own stuff while divinely possessed. So they'll sort of become possessed and they'll write for a while, right? And then there's their revelations. But they might also sort of lecture, which could be seen as giving a sermon a bit. Right? So they will do these things while divinely possessed. Okay. So how do you know they're divinely possessed, not demonically possessed? Right. <laughs> it's a lot harder without the soup, honestly. Yeah. Well, this is the fun thing. Okay. <clears throat> So it's called discernment. It's the practice of discernment uh, from the Latin, of course, to separate or distinguish. And discernment, we still have that term today, but we tend to use it to mean, you know, someone who has good taste. (laughs) You can distinguish good stuff from bad stuff. I think I've heard it used among people who are thinking about entering the priesthood, that they go through what they call a process of discernment to determine if... um, if they should become priests or not. Yes. And that is exactly what this is. That's this type of discernment. And we mean distinguishing someone's spirit. Right? Separating the spirit from the person and being able to distinguish that spirit. Is it divine or demonic? Essentially. So, here we have <laughs> um, Diane Elliott and Proving Woman. She's also got a book, Fallen Bodies, but Proving Woman is really about this. We've quoted it before. And of course, the title, hopefully, will give you a sense. Um, 
that it is, this is what it's about. It's about the sort of whole idea. There's the idea of discerning, first of all, you have to be able to discern. And Elliot points out that this sort of test, the way you test people, um, is compared to um, essentially the same test that you gave a gold coin to prove that it was real. Okay. Gold is tested in fire, and it was known as proof. Mm-hmm. Proving, right? Um, and that is what this is. And so the Latin is probare, to test, to examine, to inspect, to judge. And you are testing a person, essentially, to find out if they're true gold or if they're false. Right? Um, so fire, <laughs> fire is frequently used. Uh, okay. I mean, like, you're going to find out something about humans with fire, but I'm, I'm unconvinced. Yeah. Well, a lot of um, women who are divinely possessed, uh, there's some terrible things that happen. Um, you, like, you know, you might get bol- molten lead poured on you or various things like that, but you won't feel it oh until God. you come out of your... Yeah. You won't feel it until okay. you come out of your trance. So... At which point you will be in horrible pain. But right. the divine part of the divine possession is demonstrated by the fact you don't feel it when you're in your trance. Interesting. So when you're possessed. Yeah. So we would call this, in modern terms, something of a hysterical state, I think. Well, it could also be more catatonic. Mm-hmm. You could, which is what a lot of these sort of seem like, right? These women fall into a trance, you know, and you poke them, um, and they nothing happens. You know, if you move just like one hand, like the hand won't move, the the whole body will sway, you know, wow. like a statue. Okay. This isn't true of everybody, but this is one of the possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. This is one of the sort of common motifs. Um, so you prove these women. Yeah, so probari. So in English, even, right, an early, one of the early meanings of to prove is to test, right, to make sure some, that something is genuine. So proof means anything that's given an evidence in a test. Mm-hmm. Right? That's meant to demonstrate truth. Um, proof can also mean the sort of result or the process of a test. So we might say to put to the proof. Put to the test, right? Sure. In math, of course, you have proofs. (laughs) (laughs) In philosophy, sort of. Yeah. So fire is, of course, the best way to prove things. You've got heavenly fire. You've got hellfire. You've just got regular fire (laughs) that can be used to burn people and see if they flinch. Um... So, Latin probatio. Okay. Um, that is the process of the test, process of testing or proving, right? Um, it can also be a written document, sort of about the process, the probatio. And you essentially, you prove either that this person is pure gold, right? <laughs> so, divine. Actually, divinely possessed. possessed. Yeah. Or not counterfeit, in which case, of course, demonic. Yeah. So we're going to return to Jean Gerson, who we've mentioned before, 1363 to 1429, uh, eventually becomes Chancellor of the University of Paris. Um, he starts out, we mentioned him before because he started out um, sort of writing against St. Brigitte of Sweden. Yes. Um, who was canonized. Despite um, him. And then, yes, despite him. And then at the end of his career, and we're going to go over that very quickly, just some of the main documents. Uh, but at the end of his career, he writes for Joan of Arc. And unfortunately, is not convincing, um, and but dies dies actually before she does, because he dies in fourteen twenty nine. Okay, so um, one of his really really early texts is um, usually translated on distinguishing true from false revelations. Okay, um, yeah, so de distinzione, um, and he compares the coin of spiritual revelation. 
to gold that needs to be examined or tested. Right? Okay. Um, so the person who is doing this test, who is carrying on this probatio, right, um, is like someone testing gold, right? And the point is to distinguish if their revelations are true or false, right? So that's 1401. In 1415, he actually writes uh, De Probatione Spiritum, so on the proving of spirits or the discernment of spirits, mm-hmm. where he returns to this idea, right, of how you test someone, right? How do you sort of carry out this probatio? How do you prove that, you know, they are true gold and not false? Or how do you prove that they're false? And in 1423, we get um, on the examination of doctrines. And he essentially calls for an inquisition, an inquisitio, to be part of the canonization process, Hmm. which is, of course, really important. And he's not... Um, totally alone here. It's not that this hasn't in some ways been happening before. But this, he's part of this um, sort of sea change that is profoundly going to affect the way a lot of people, but particularly women, are treated in the future. Mm -hmm. So he has sort of talked about the fact that um, women, after a certain point, right, the church sort of clamped down on them, clamped down on their writings. Begin sort of got pushed into official channels, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, this is part of that clampdown. Um, so an inquisitio is a seeking, a searching, an examining, and inquiring. And originally, an inquisitio is usually carried out, this sort of inquiry is usually carried out by, of course, an inquisitor, um, who is looking for heretics. However, <laughs> uh, one of the whole points of proving woman that Diana Light's sort of arguing throughout, um, is that she says, quote, ultimately, the distance between saint and heretic practically disappeared. Oh. End quote. So essentially, once you start to des- test saints, right? So remember, a saint has to have died. A heretic is still alive. You put them on trial. A saint has died. You put them on trial. And you essentially carry out, Jerusalem's saying you have to carry out the same inquisition on a saint that you would on a heretic. Because you have to discern them, right? Right. The thing is, of course, that the minute you make an inquisitio part of that procedure... First of all, you're going to find a lot fewer saints. Because an Inquisitio mm-hmm. is really set up to find heretics. You know, more than saints. And you're also going to fundamentally change the nature of the way saints are thought of. Right? So the idea of a saint being different from a heretic, suddenly they're really not. They're two sides of the same coin. So proving a saint and proving a heretic become nearly synonymous. You know? Hmm. And the techniques advocated by someone like Gerson, right? Putting an Inquisitio into a canonization makes this really kind of inevitable. (laughs) Um, So he's the chancellor of the University of Paris, which definitely is a place that is discerning heretics as well. And he's borrowing this idea um, from the scholastic disputatio, which is basically a debate. Arguing, reasoning, debate, a dispute, right? An academic dispute. And in an academic dispute, this is also sort of from Eliot, right? A scholar isolates an area of investigation in the form of a proposition, which is put as a quaestio. Right, so the question, a question, right, you know, like an exam question. Some smart professor comes up with a great exam question and sets it to their students. And then you have a debate. Anyone who's been right. in debate club, there are two sides, right? So the question is then uh, interrogated so that two opposing sides emerge, right? One for and one against. Mm-hmm. Um, and the inquisitio and the disputatio are basically related, right? The disputatio is in many ways the scholastic version of an inquisitio. Sure. Right? So it's the academic variation. Is this, this is still what they do today where you have the devil's advocate and the 
advocate Angeli, and uh, everybody collects their evidence, and then... Right. And of course, devil's advocate, right? Satan means the adversary. Mm-hmm. He is the advocate, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's the ultimate lawyer. Yeah. And so this idea, of course, in the am- academic version, right, then the disputatio, basically the verdict is sort of preordained, right? Which is dangerous, because the same is really true in the Inquisitio as well. It's sort of... Mm-hmm. And instead of being innocent until proven guilty, you're basically a heretic until you're proven to be a saint. Which means, of course, hmm. it's so much easier to prove you a heretic. Yes. Right? And this, I'm going to insult Socrates here. <laughs> There's so many reasons. I insult him frequently in class. It's okay. Um, for not, I think, you know. He can take it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for basically not being the, you know, academic freedom person we all martyr to academic freedom that everyone thinks he was. Um, but for basically, you know, started a coup <laughs> and overthrown well. the democracy. Um, but in addition to that, um, the Socratic method, right? It isn't really geared to truth. He sets his questions to get the answers he wants. Right. Right. So that he can keep going the way he wants to. (laughs) It's geared Um, for a certain type of truth, which is the one that he knows already. He claims he doesn't know. It's not geared for, let's have a conversation and discover, you know... What does justice mean together? Exactly. So, and that is true of the Disputatio. It is true of the Inquisitio, right? And so this is how we get the Inquisition. What a uh, show. So, yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> Brilliantly <laughs> demonstrated by Mel Brooks. And of course, never expected by Monty Python. Yes. Please visit our footnotes to see those clips if you want <laughs> to see them again, which, which we know you do. Of course, because of course you, you do. Yes. <laughs> uh, so great. Um, but this is, right, this is the problem. Um, so we have this really interesting setup where um, canonization and um, heresy, right, accusations and the trials are basically very similar. The procedures get more and more similar and more and more frequently right? Therefore, you're going to end up with heretics, not saints. And so Gerson mm. basically, through organization, gets what he wanted, which is to say that women are much less likely now to be canonized, right? Because the procedure sort of set up against them. Right. Um, and that's what he wanted all along. But mm. <laughs> what should happen at the end of his career? But this woman who sort of comes out of nowhere as this young girl claims she sees visions, Right. Uh, St. Catherine, St. Margaret, St. Michael. Um, they tell her They tell her things. They sort of tell her what to do. She claims that she can get the prince crowned Charlie. And she does it, right? She's extraordinary. She does it. Suddenly they win battles. They raise sieges. They do all this amazing stuff. They get the now king, right? I mean, he has sure. been king, but he hasn't been crowned. They get him crowned at Reims Cathedral. Um, amazing. Okay, so Joan of Arc, she's born around 1412, and of course she dies definitely, definitely on the 30th of May. So we're right on her anniversary here. It's the 31st, right? 1431. (laughs) Yeah. And um, this is actually, so 2020, um, she was canonized the 16th of May, 1920. So almost exactly 100 years ago. Wow. That took a lot longer than I thought it would have somehow no, because she is to this day the only person burned as a heretic to have been canonized as a saint. 
And she embodies exactly what we've talked about. First of all, the difficulty in knowing, in discerning who is who. Right. And the demonstration that, A, you're more likely to find a saint a heretic than the other way around. B, you can still get it wrong. Um, and, of course, it's sort of weighted against women. And finally, the ultimate problem of this, which is a heretic is assumed to go straight to hell. Right. That is what makes a heretic different from anyone else. A heretic is going to hell. Straight to hell. A saint goes straight to heaven. They don't need to go to purgatory, right? (laughs) So they essentially burn someone at the stake, assuming they were going straight to hell, who actually went straight to heaven. That is a hard, hard thing to admit. The church is not proud of it. (laughs) They kind of are a little bit quiet about it, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's difficult. So yes, it took them forever. Uh, Pope Benedict XV finally canonized her. Um, Yeah, it took a long time. Right. And so she is she is martyred at Rouen. Um, she's burned for heresy and also witchcraft. But witchcraft is a subsection of heresy. This is why witches are burned. <laughs> so back to Monty Python. It's not because they are made of wood. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, although they, you know, float like a duck, etc. Um, yes, they, they're actually burned. Which, of course, the Pythons knew because, like, Terry Jones was a medievalist and they all went to Oxford and Cambridge. Um, but in fact, yes, witches are burned because they are heretics. And heretics, okay. heretics are burned because they are going straight to hell. Right. So she is accused of heresy and witchcraft. Cross-dressing is one of the big things. Ooh. It is considered one of the big proofs. Okay. Right. In the test of what makes her false, cross-dressing is one of the big ones. And Gerson supports her. Um, and points out that she does all the stuff she said she'll do. Mm-hmm. And the siege at Orleans is raised in like nine days. So, you know, it was pretty clear to everybody, given how badly the French had been doing yeah. before, that God was, must be on her side. Sure. Because right? she clearly did turn things around. Now, historically, she really did. So she was clearly amazing. She was clearly an amazing human being. These are not the um, sort yeah, of things you expect from, you know, like a 15-year-old girl or something in any right. era. Who's a peasant. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was clearly amazing. She understood a lot. You know, when she clearly helped in the room. I mean, you know, she had some great, obviously, military people around her, but they had not been winning without her. So whatever it is she did, whatever it is she knew, she was very good at her job, essentially. And if you do believe in divine <laughs> possession um, or inspiration, she definitely had. It. I mean, you know, if you don't believe in it, then she was just a remarkable, amazing person. But if you do believe in it, then, yeah, she definitely had it. Um, but, of course, when she's captured, she's captured uh, by the Burgundians, who are pro-British. So she's held by the pro-British forces, right? University of Paris at the time is pro-British. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a reminder, of course, that parts of France are belong to England. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? At the time. And others are closely aligned to England. So this is the problem, right? So she is condemned and tried by the pro-English forces. It's actually, um, and that's who puts her, her in the state. awkward position of having been martyred by Catholics. Yes. <laughs> yep. But, you know, as a political expedient. Yes. Yeah. They're fighting other Catholics. That's what happens. But yeah, terrible. <laughs> so the church is embarrassed. It doesn't take them long to declare her innocent. And the same trial transcripts that were used to condemn her are ultimately used, of course, to oh. declare her innocence. And be innocent. <laughs> okay. You know. Yeah. 
so yeah, the British did a bad, bad thing. <laughs> um, the British are terrible. I mean, you know, the British and the French, it goes way back. Yeah. Like a hundred years. I mean, just the hundred. Yeah. Well, at the time, all right, the hundred years war, yeah. but of course they, you know, they've been fighting before that and they continue to fight after that. And the fact that they managed to be on the same side in every world war is kind of happenstance as far as I'm concerned. Right. That's not really true. I mean, the French love and hate the English, and the English love and hate the French. It's right. a very sibling rivalry sort of thing. Well, like, um, but yes, they even have, a two hundred years yeah. before, well, four hundred years before at this point, like the the mm-hmm. French had gone, like the Normans had gone through and conquered the British Isles, right? So they yeah, well, English, English England's royal family was they Norman. were not yeah. they were French not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Which is maybe why they felt more ties to the oh yeah territory but you know it's why english has well england the english kings they did hold normandy right i mean yeah this was the problem right <laughs> he couldn't be both king of england and vassal to the french throne um but the languages bordered right the Fr- the english court spoke french forever all this stuff yeah i mean the history is just incredible <laughs> that's for a separate episode yes where we can also talk a lot about Shakespeare. Um, and even maybe about his sort of coverage of Joan of Arc. But anyway, all of this stuff goes on. <laughs> and um, there's this sort of aspect of it, right, that is so clearly so clearly just political and, of course, also sexist. Right. But also political, really. But it does result in exactly the sort of thing that Gerson had both been sort of fighting for and then ultimately against, right? But it, it's just this reminder, he dies before she does, so he doesn't sort of know that this is what happened, but um, he'd sort of really done his work too well, and the system he'd set up worked perfectly in many ways as planned, except ultimately not as he had planned, right? Um, but it's kind of like those people who are like, you know, we, sh- we should pass this law, and of course, if there's an exception where someone who really deserves to, you know, get away with it or whatever, um, well, of course, they'll be allowed to do it. But that's not how that works, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Everyone just gets tried <laughs> and convicted. Um, you don't get to choose your exceptions. Yeah. So, Joan uh, becomes a sort of big moment. There's someone else I want to mention real quick, and this is Christina the Astonishing, or the Mirabilis. Um, she's... Good name. Dutch. Um, from St. Tr- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's from St. Trouden. Uh, 1150 to 1224. So she's early. She's earlier than a lot of people we've been talking about just now. But she is amazing and astonishing. She is astonishing. Uh, Barbara Newman, in a, an article called Possessed by the Spirit, uh, calls her the demoniac saint. Hmm. Uh, and she says, quote, um, rather than asking why so many of Christina's neighbors mistook this holy woman for a demoniac. Demoniac, of course, means someone possessed by a demon, right? Right. Um, we might just as well ask why Thomas of Contemporary took the risk of representing the village lunatic as a saint. Okay, so Thomas is the one who wrote her life. He wrote the lives of some other women as well. Okay. Why Why did he pick her, right? Um, and so uh, Barbara Newman says, right, that Christina essentially becomes the patron saint of demoniacs, proving that a pure and sacrificial will could transform even their most grotesque behavior into a manifestation of holiness. Hmm. All right, I love this. Christina is sort of the opposite end of this extreme. <laughs> um, she is astonishing. She does behave in ways that um, at other points in history would have gotten her locked up, unfortunately, right? To call her a hysteric would sort of go way beyond, I mean, 
she's far, far beyond that. Term. <laughs> um, we don't really have a term for her much, to be fair. Um, she was thought to be dead at one point, and she sort of resurrected at her own funeral and, like, flew up to the rafters and had to be brought down. Um, what? She would regularly do things. Yes. Uh, <laughs> please. We will link to her Wikipedia page. Oh, my page. gosh. It, it doesn't do her justice, yeah. though. Um, if you can find her life, do it. It's been translated. We'll put that in the notes. Um, but she would regularly do things like um, that were assumed to be sort of demoniac behaviors. Uh, she'd be confronted by the Eucharist and she'd like run away madly. Oh, uh, but sure. at other times she'd love it. Um, she herself seems to sort of attempted to exercise her demons a couple times, sort of through various forms of baptism or half drowning herself or things like this. Okay. And she seems to maybe have eventually succeeded. But the general sense of this life that Thomas writes for her is that she is doing penance. She's sort of been stricken to do penance in the world uh, for herself and others. Right. So he views ultimately her behavior and her sort of um, will. This is sort of what Newman says, right? That as much as we would were surprised in reading this, that she isn't called a demoniac, um, that she isn't locked up, right? That instead she sort of turned into a saint. That there is this remarkable sense of taking this behavior that's so extreme, but clearly this woman who really does have this sort of will, <laughs> um, that wants to make this a sort of penance, right? That that's essentially what happens, right? Is that it is seen as she has been given, you know, yeah. sort of suffering by God for herself and others. But absolutely, right, the fact that she could have a life written about her, she's she's early. Um, but this couldn't have happened later, mm -hmm. right? Um, eventually, you get to the point when even someone like Joan of Arc, who does things that are unquestionably miraculous, <laughs> you know, and is his, these are historical facts. Right. I mean, she did this stuff. That she gets printed at the same as a heretic. And that it takes her, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, to actually become canonized, right? And so this sense of the way in which the can, you know, we move from these women who are sort of like, everybody should be part of God's love. The idea of damnation is horrific. We move from them into this sort of very um, male academic dominated world that sort of says, no, wait a minute. Right. You got to test people. You can't just be taking the divine at face value. It's much more likely to be demonic. How do you tell? Well, you test everybody, right? An inquisitio for a heretic, an inquisitio for a saint, right? Sure. Probatio, you, you test both of them. You basically torture both of them. You see what happens, right? Um, and of course, that is set up to find heretics really not saints, and that's basically what ends up happening. Um, so the sort of final comment, I know we're out of time, but um, that Richard Keekeffer has written a lot about the Inquisition. <laughs> Um, and one of his sort of main points is that it didn't exist as an institutional authority, really, before 1542. Oh, interesting. And before that, the Inquisitio, certain regions might have had semi-institutional formats, but really mm -hmm. it's down to the individual, the individual inquisitor. Oh. Right? Okay. That there's not really much of an institutional setup anywhere. Yeah. And that this is actually one of the big problems, is that um, if there had been a sort of more direct sort of institutional control, they might have been able to rein back a lot of the really terrible inquisitors mm -hmm. that were going around sort of having people burnt. 
Um, and in a lot of cases, it really depended. The individual inquisitor could stop a local vendetta or encourage it. Yeah. You know? You have people burning their local, you know, family or friends or whoever, you know, in vendettas. Right. And an inquisitor could put a stop to that or could encourage it. And there's not really a unified inquisitional structure mm. that could rule over that. Right. Um, and that this becomes sort of one of the big problems of inquisitors. And that ultimately, of course, when we finally get the inquisition, the institutional forms as it exists basically in Spain, particularly from 1492 right. on, although it sort of starts in 1478, but, but particularly Spain, 1492, and then Rome in the 1500s, that those institutions, of course, really take off. But at that point, um, it's institutional, not just within the church, right, sort of against heretics, but also really you're starting the, the proto-Protestant and Protestant heresies, right? So um, that becomes a whole other aspect. All right. So that is something we might get into more later, <laughs> um, but it is worth pointing out <laughs> that um, in all of these cases that we're talking about, right, inquisition, we really mean the process, individual inquisitors, but not an institution. Okay, so I guess we sometimes talk about, like, I've read that the Inquisition typically kept very good records of things, um, tran especially transcripts of when they were torturing people, um, which I think oh, has yeah. probably Having been... Oh, yeah, Joan of Arc's trials, right? right? We got them. Made into mm -hmm. various uh, comedic sketches. But so what we're saying is that maybe, I don't know, People didn't have a lot of oversight into how they made their judgments, but in general, they sort of went about the in inquiry in similar ways. Yeah, well, the records, some inquisitors kept great records and some okay. didn't. So, um, when you are at a specific location, University of Paris, mm -hmm. or of course, Jones Trial, right, Rouen. These are, these were big events. Great records. Yeah. But, um, when you have people wandering around the countryside, going out of vendettas, there might or might not be records. And this is the sort of problem. Mm -hmm. So, a good example <laughs> of a terrible human being is Conrad of Marburg, who was an inquisitor. Exactly how much authority he had is actually a little unclear. The Pope was kind of behind him, but did he actually have papal sanction or not is not entirely clear. Hmm. But he's 1180 to 1233. Um, he was also the um, sort of religious mentor of Elizabeth of Hungary, who becomes a saint. He treated her horribly. Um, and he himself finally overreached. He charged some noblemen who murdered him. So that's how he died. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it was basically deserved as a death. Yeah. But he's a great example of someone who <laughs> um, kept records enough to make himself known, made huge charges, um, and went in front of important sort of councils and stuff. Um, so all of that stuff is on record, and he kept track of it. But... He's also, I mean, to say that history is, you know, written by the winners or is one-sided, mm -hmm. it's also a great example of that, you know? Um, and you would have other people 
other Inquisitors who would show up places, you know, where maybe an Inquisitor had been working in a village and someone else would show up and sort of find everything in disarray and it would be unclear what had happened or what the evidence had been. And, you know, um, so it really, really depended on who was in charge. Okay. Um, individual Inquisitors, some of them keep fantastic records and some of them absolutely did not. And that could be by design or because they were sloppy. And the ones who did keep really good records, it you know, why they kept certain records, you know, it could depend, etc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so as one-sided as Joan of Arc's trial is, you know, the records are being kept by an official body. So that's good. I mean, we have them and that's important. But that was a big event. You know, you have these other people wandering around doing things that aren't quite as big and important. Um, Not as legit. You do have people who are sort of in between. Um, you have Jacques Fournier, 1285 to 1342. He ends up Pope Benedict XII. <laughs> and actually, this is something that's really interesting because um, he's not necessarily terrible the way Conrad of Marburg is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he ends up Pope. He's trying to do his duty. He is trying to keep records. <laughs> he is trying to be a responsible inquisitor. Yeah. That being said, of course, he definitely does some stuff we would presumably not agree with today. And, you know, it's a little questionable here and there. He is trying to make his name. That's how he ends up being coming Pope. Um, but also really notable, when Benedict XVI chose his name, he was the head of the Office of the Inquisition, which is now called something else. Oh, this is this is Ratzinger. But that's... Yeah. Mm. And this is sort of the really, <laughs> really, really interesting thing. <laughs> yes. The fact that he was the head of what used to be the Office of the Inquisition, essentially, and that he chose the name Benedict, thus becoming Benedict Sixteenth. Yes. And that um, sort of the previous obvious pope, who had been an inquisitor and then become pope had been Jacques Fournier, who became Benedict Twelfth. So he picked his name very specifically. Hmm. Okay. And there was a lot of discussion about that in sort of the medieval community. So, again, medievalists everywhere sort of gasped. Yes. But not quite the same way as they did with Francis. Right. Um, it's different. Because, yeah. The, the office, by the way, today is called Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, <laughs> it's a nicer, yeah, no it's a rebranding. Yes, yes rebranded. Um, but yeah, whereas when Francis chose his name, yes, the collective gasp was sort of the opposite. Um, yeah. And was even more of a commentary coming after, right, Benedict. the Inquisitor to Pope Benedict than it would have been anyway. I mean, no one had yeah. previously been a Francis. It's already a ginormous statement. But to pick it after that, right... To go from, we really need to define the faith, we need to define who we are, and what was read as being in a much narrower sense, right? Someone who's concerned with heresy and orthodoxy, that's a much, much narrower sense. Whereas Francis, of course, is, right, the world is, you know, everyone's our brothers, our sisters, the animals are our brothers and sisters, right? The stars. We need to be kind to everybody and take care of everything and care about things. Yeah. Yes. So there was a definitely a much, much different sense. Um, but anyway, this, but this is a general idea, right, of, of the Inquisition and how it sort of relates to everything. Um, and not just hell, but also, also heaven, right? Canonization, that these things sort of become very much, very much one and the same. Yeah. 
and it's part of the end of sort of all the women that we talked about and um not all of them of course i mean they keep going but it becomes harder right marjorie kemp does get put on trial for being lollard you know it it gets harder (laughs) for Mm -hmm. women um but she is acquitted yes she is acquitted yeah yes and arguably because she's not a lollard she's not one yeah she may be she may not be a saint i mean that's but she's not a heretic you know (laughs) Uh, but they don't convict her just because she's annoying which is right they could have you know progress in a sense exactly so um yeah but this idea of the ways in which those the trial becomes very much weighted against a sense of divine possession at all but particularly for women all right yep awesome well i think we're gonna have to wrap it up there yes but this is yeah that's really interesting let's see i don't have my little spiel written down but i will say we have a facebook page for anybody who is interested in um finding out when we drop episodes that's a great way to do it you can also send us questions through facebook um easy enough right we also have an ask us link on the website that you're welcome to fill out our little form and ask us questions about the middle ages and you could hear your question uh, right here thank you to everybody who's left us reviews uh or you know just some stars as a review that's great i feel like there was something else i really wanted to put in this this week and it's just completely flown out of my mind i don't know do we mention twitter i don't know Twitter, yes, we're on Twitter at Ask a Medievalist, and um, you can tweet to us if you would like. That's definitely a thing that you could do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. So, uh, yeah, great talk, and I hope everybody enjoyed this episode as much as I did. So, yeah. Till next yes. time, uh, keep it medieval. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. <laughs>